Well, today's message is about the paradox of submission and about the freedom that it brings. Um, Martin Luther, I think, summed up the paradox pretty well when he said this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all. So which one's true? How can it be that we're, we answer to no one and yet we serve everyone? And yet I believe it is true. And it's one of the paradoxes of the gospel. It's a, the words of Jesus and the example of Jesus uh, sort of set an example for us that uh, that's diffi it's difficult to follow. And yet, although it seems like slavery on the face of it, it's the ultimate freedom. Um, we're in week seven out of 12 of our 12-week series on spiritual fitness. Last month, we did the inward disciplines. This week, we're on the third out of the four outward disciplines. We, uh, we did simplicity and solitude the last two weeks. Today, we're gonna to talk about submission, and next week, we'll talk about service. And then we'll do a month on the corporate disciplines, the ones we practice together. And I mentioned this in the first service. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, but I think we're gonna do those four out of order. I think I can do them out of order without violating the principles of Foster's book. You know, we're using as our, as our outline for this, this book by Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline. But the reason I wanna do the last four out of order is <clears throat> two weeks from today is our sixth anniversary as a church. And uh, I've written to uh, some of the founding members of the church. Uh, uh, some of those have moved on to other callings. I've invited them back. Wanna honor them and thank them for what they've done. As you run into MCC old timers in the next couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, please invite them back. And uh, I think it might be appropriate to do celebration that week uh, since we're gonna be celebrating what God's done here. And uh, uh, so I, th I think I can switch the order and then we'll, then we'll finish up with the last three. So we'll be done, we'll be done with this series by Christmas. And uh, st um, I'm already starting to think about what to do in January with a, a new series. And uh, I'm, I'm tempted by a, a a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of the book of John. Um, that's the thing I'm kind of leaning towards now, but I sort of take requests, and so, you know, pray, and uh, uh, if you have ideas, uh, feel free to email me. Tell me what you think. Submission is a very unpopular topic. It's not just unpopular in 2008. It's been unpopular for, you know, the last 2,000 years. Uh, one of the reasons is that it's often abused. Religion is one of the opportunities that people have to put other people in bondage. And, and this uh, false teaching or uh, incorrect or unbalanced teaching on the idea of submission can be very hurtful. And it's one of the places, I think, in a church context that, that, <clears throat> that we can, we can that it's, it's just risky, that we can uh, teach people incorrectly and a lot of hurt can result. So I, I think that one of the one of the fruits of that is that people will just reject the teaching altogether, which I think is dangerous. The other teaching is they'll embrace the wrong teaching, which I think is dangerous in a different direction. And so we're going to try to go back to the scriptures and see what Jesus had to say, what Jesus had to model, or what the epistle writers had to say about this whole idea of submission. See if we can like, get closer to God's heart and see what what he had to mean, what he had to say about it, what he means for us. <clears throat> Every discipline leads to freedom. And that's really the goal. The discipline in and of itself is the means to an end. It's not the goal by itself. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe you've heard of Demosthenes, the uh, <clears throat> uh, ancient Greek orator. Does anybody know how he trained for becoming such a great speaker? 
old story. He uh, put pebbles in his mouth, and he would stand on the seashore and try with the pebbles in his mouth to, to articulate his words louder than the sound of the waves crashing. And what's the goal of that? So you could chew on rocks? That's not a goal unto itself. The, the discipline of, that he practiced led to the freedom of becoming a great speaker. And he's, you know, this many thousand years later, is known, uh, he's, he's in the history books as a great orator because of the discipline he practiced. If, if we center on the disciplines as an end unto themselves, well, that's legalism. And that really is the way that leads to death. These disciplines that, that Foster promotes are not laws that you must practice or else. They are a path to intimacy with Jesus. And that's our goal. We have to, to resist the temptation to turn them into laws and continue to focus on Jesus and use these disciplines as a mean to the end of intimacy with Christ. I think submission, this is my opinion on submission, I think it's one of the, the, the most important uh, for any group, for any disciple who's practicing his discipleship in a society of disciples, it, it's one of the more important ones to listen, to learn, and it's a hard one to grasp. My attitude about this is I don't, I don't trust anybody to lead if I'm not sure that they know how to follow. Or I would flip it around for you. I would recommend that you beware of following a leader who hasn't demonstrated an ability to follow, uh, who hasn't pr practiced submission. And there are several examples from history of people who are put at risk because the leader they follow is reckless. The leader they follow can't submit. And, and I, would, I would recommend that you beware of putting yourself at that risk. Uh, Foster says it this way, what freedom corresponds to submission? It is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our way. The obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. Now he wrote this thing 30 years ago. Um, does, is it any less true today? I don't, I don't think so. This seems to me to be a, 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 an accurate indictment of our society. What I found is that most things in life aren't as important as we think they are, and for sure my opinion is not as important as I think it is. Foster claims that most church disputes result over an inability to give in. You know, we want to tell ourselves it's over some critical issue or some sacred principle, but usually, more often, it's just people won't give in because they, they want to get their way. So the hope I want to offer today is that mastering the discipline of submission means we can distinguish between genuine concerns and stubborn self-will. And submission goes well with the concept that we, uh, we studied last week of, of of silence or solitude, because quite often brevity of speech helps us with this. Sometimes no answer or a very brief answer is, is a more appropriate way to submit. I'll, I'll try to give an example of that to illustrate. See, I, I've tried to discipline myself not to care about things I don't have to care about. And yet when I say I don't care, that sometimes is an offensive answer. And uh, I thought of an example during the first service. A couple weeks ago, um, on Wednesday night, either before or after the worship service, we were talking about where to put those bookshelves, the ones that are in the back corner. And I can't remember who was first, Diane or Morris, they both had ideas on it. And, and one of them said, um, what, I think it would be a, a good idea to put the bookshelves on this wall. And I kind of nodded and I said, yeah, I agree with that. That sounds good to me. And then the other one said, actually, I think it would be better over on this wall. And I kind of nodded and said, yeah, I agree with that. That sounds good to me. 
And then they kind of looked at each other and laughed, and, and they, they rec we all recognized that I said yes to both of them, although their ideas didn't, didn't match up. And I think it was Diane said, you don't really care where the bookshelves go, do you? And, uh, and of course, that was accurate. I, I didn't care where the bookshelves went. Um, and yet, sometimes that's an offensive thing to say, because I care about Morris and Diane, and I don't want to, I want to be careful not to communicate um, a lack of concern for things that concern you. But I also have tried to, to practice the discipline of caring about things that matter more and, and caring about people more than about getting my way in the details. And so there's a part of that that's appropriate, I think, and there's a part of it where if I'm careless, I can be insensitive. And so that's the, so sometimes just okay or nothing, no, no words at all would be more helpful than I don't care, because uh, that comes off as, as kind of rude. When the Bible talks about submission, it's less about the hierarchy of positions and much more about the attitude of the heart. And we're going to see uh, Paul, Jesus and Peter and Paul zero in on the attitude of the heart. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.18, Peter says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now remember, this is written in the context of 2,000 years ago, where as many as a third of the Roman Empire were slaves, and it wasn't like slavery in the American South before the Civil War. You could get into slavery back then for uh, losing a war or, or getting in economic problems. Instead of uh, bankruptcy, you would sell off a couple kids into slavery uh, uh, back 2,000 years ago. That was a common way to do it. And it wasn't always passed down parent to child uh, in, in the Roman Empire. But think about the context Peter's writing in. It's not it's not necessary to tell his readers who's boss in the master-slave relationship. That's plain. Everybody knows that. But notice Peter's talking about the heart. And it's possible, I think we all can recognize this. You've seen it, I think, if you're a parent, for sure. And maybe some of us have practiced it. Practiced it. It's possible to be outwardly compliant while still inwardly defiant, right? Uh, Passive-aggressive is not a word that you, or not a phrase that you'd find in the scriptures, but I think Peter's talking about that attitude here, where you say not only do you comply outwardly, but, but to, to inwardly, in your, in your heart, try to develop an attitude of consideration or respect. One of the things, as, as we learn the, the discipline of submission, one of the things that we'll discover is that it's far better to serve your neighbor than to focus on trying to get your way. And, and if, when we focus on trying to get our way, we're kind of doomed to, to always needing to have control and then always being dissatisfied. Because what I found is when I've attempted to control people, I'm not that good at it, I'm not that effective. They don't do what I want them to do. They don't do what I say. You know, I, have, have you ever thought how much better the world would work if you could just move people around like chess pieces and get them to do your bidding? And yet, uh, I guess I honestly don't really believe the world would work better that way. Um, but sometimes I'm tempted into falling into that trap, and yet it never happens. And so somehow we're going to have to learn to give up that control, or we're always going to be you know, in a place of inner turmoil. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now here's the liberation that comes from submission. You no longer have to keep score. You know, we live in a world that says, You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You mess with me, I'll mess with you. Uh, but Jesus said, now I'm going to love and serve you. And if we follow his example, that's what we're going to say. I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, 
And the way you respond to me, that's going to be between you and God. I'm not responsible for controlling that part. Matthew 5:38, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now maybe you've noticed that Foster kind of comes at this submission concept through the back door. Instead of telling us how to submit or what submission is, he tells us, first of all, the, the value of submission. What's the advantage? And then he's going to show us what's, what's good about it. And what's happened, and, and I think the reason he did that is because traditions, traditionally, teachings on submission have been so mutilated that you face one of two options. You either embrace the, the, the deformity, the false teaching, or just reject it altogether. And yet both avenues are risky. If you embrace the wrong attitude towards submission, the wrong view, the, 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 what I would consider the, the, the mutilated teaching on submission, then that's going to lead you into a place of self-hatred. And if you embrace or if you just reject the idea of submission altogether, that's going to lead you to an equally dangerous place of self-glorification. And I think that's much more common in our society today. The whole concept of submission sometimes just makes people uncomfortable, especially outside the church. It's like, I'm not going to submit to anybody. And, and, uh, and yet that attitude has not really made us more free. we become slaves to our own desires, it seems. Mark 8:34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are very strange words. And those just don't match up to it with what we believe the path, what our world believes the path to fulfillment is. What about fulfillment? What about self-actualization? What is this self-denial that he's talking about? And so for many of us, the reason we have such a problem uh, that self-denial is such a sticking point, a choking point for us, is that we have these misconceptions about what it is. It is not self-hatred. It's not a loss of identity. It's not self-contempt. Self-denial is I don't have to get my way. Self-denial means my happiness is not dependent on getting what I want. Without self-denial, anytime you're disappointed, it's easy to take the next step down the path to self-pity. I didn't get my way, and so now woe is me, and I, and I start playing the part of a martyr. And in fact, nobody's really tried to kill me. They just didn't meet my expectations, you know, which is not always a sin, is it? So did Jesus lose his identity? when he practiced the way of self-denial? No, he did not lose his identity at the cross. Now, he submitted. He submitted willingly even unto death. But he didn't give up his identity. He fulfilled his ultimate calling. Self-denial is not self-contempt. In fact, a healthy biblical self-image is actually a prerequisite for being able to love your neighbor. Take a look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you're filled with self-loathing, then what do you have to give your neighbor? If you love them the same way you hate yourself, then you haven't given them anything at all. So a, a, a reasonable, healthy self-image is necessary for being able to love your neighbor. Thomas Akempis wrote, to, uh, to have no opinion of ourselves and to think always well and highly of others is great wisdom and perfection. And I think this illustrates why these devotional masters are kind of unpopular reading today, because this is hard. Uh, this is a hard concept for us to grasp today. Let's go back to what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Now, whenever I teach on this verse, I always like to point out that we commonly misconstrue what, what this message is. Very commonly use this phrase out of context. You ever heard anybody say, well, that's just my cross to bear, or I got this coworker who's unpleasant, and I guess I just have to deal with that cross. And, and the idea of your cross being some kind of inconvenience you have to put up with, that's not, that's not accurate biblically. In order to understand the words of, of the, the, the writers of Scripture, we need to, as much as possible, go back to their world and see what those would have meant to the hearers of that day so we can apply them to our lives today. The cross meant only one thing 2,000 years ago. It was the way to torture someone to death. It was, it was a method of execution for the worst capital criminal, criminals. The, the Romans invented crucifixion because previous methods of executing people weren't horrible enough for them, and they wanted to make it more horrible, to set a more horrible example so no one would ever do this. So in modern context, for us to say something like this, it would be Jesus would say, if you want to uh, follow me, you need to jump in the electric chair or you know, go, go get the lethal injection or whatever, except those examples aren't really good enough because they're not as horrible as crucifixion. We've made less horrible ways to execute people in our society, and so what Jesus is saying is, you got to die. You got to follow me. You don't have to put up with inconvenience. You got to die. Now, how does that work? Because Jesus laid down his life all the way to death, and that was an atoning sacrifice for us. But what good would it do you if I laid down my life for you? If if you're a Secret Service agent, you get to you know you might get to take a bullet in the line of duty, and 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 serve your president. But for most of us, there's no real advantage to be gained. If I can't die for your sins, I'm guilty of my own sins. And so my death would mean nothing to you. And yet if we look at the example of Jesus, I think we have the answer because he didn't just lay down his life when he died. He laid down his life when he lived. And he lived a life of service, a life of submission all along the way. And he set us an example of a, of a leader and a loving servant. And it took him all the way to the cross. So can we follow his example? Yeah, and it's not going to lead us to the cross. That wouldn't do you any good. But can we live lives where we, where, we, where we lay down our wants, where we submit, where we give up our, I got to have things my way, and live a life of self-denial? And if that leads to death, so be it. Well, it's ultimately going to lead to death for all of us, but usually not a martyr's death. But it, wherever that leads us, are you willing to follow that path? That would be the example that Jesus set for us. And take a look. It, it's, it's like this paradox, but take a look at the promise of verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Now, that's one of those places where just biblical economy just doesn't match up. You know, we live in a world where it's like, I got to grab, I got to cling, I got to take care of myself because nobody else is going to take care of me. And Jesus says, no, you lay that down. You give up your rights. You give up your having to get your way. And you're going to find you're going to save your life and, and your, your eternal life. The, one of the most radical things that Jesus taught was he just totally reversed the concept of greatness. I always tell my history students this about if, if you ever find a world leader like um, Alexander the Great or Otto the Great or Peter the Great, uh, anybody who's got great at the end of their name, that usually means killer. Uh, that usually means a lot of people died while they were becoming great. Uh, and, and sometimes the history books will say things like, 
they united all the rival city-states, which sounds kind of nice, but what's that mean? It means they killed their rivals and forced others to submit to them. And so as a Messiah, Jesus was a major disappointment to the people that were eagerly waiting a Messiah. You think about Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were like the Sons of Liberty in ancient Israel. They were the ones that thought our path to freedom is going to be getting the Romans out of town. And so he wanted Jesus the Great to come lead armies and, and drive the Romans out of Palestine so Israel could be for the Jews like it was back in the golden age of David and Solomon. That's what the Zealots wanted. And so Jesus, what kind of leader comes and has a chance? Remember after he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king. He has a chance to lead this army. He's got mastery of the food supply. And, and that's one of the, you know, armies march on their stomachs, they say. And so there's this, there's this guy who has an opportunity to be a leader militarily and to get the Romans out of Palestine. And what's he do instead? He dies. He lets them kill him. And this, this, the cross was a major scandal to people who thought Jesus was the Messiah. And, of course, it's, we know now it's the resurrection that vindicated his claims. But if he just died and stayed dead... Uh, it would have just been the, the, the Jews of his day would have just seen him as a flash-in-the-pan false leader. Uh, so the, the resurrection vindicated his claims. But he totally reversed the idea of greatness. Instead of you know, leading the drumbeat of war to, to get the Romans out, he submitted, and he submitted to an obedient death on the cross, which, which is a <clears throat> very radical uh, flipping of the idea. Mark 9.35 says it's a... It's a uh, in Mark 9.35, Jesus said this. He called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He creates a new order of leadership. And then the night before he was crucified, Jesus gave us a very vivid and specific example. In John 13, 14, and 15, he washed their feet, and then he said this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, I'd like to talk about that. Every time I get that verse, I feel like I need to give a little bit of an explanation because the same night he washed their feet and said, do like I've done for you, he also celebrated the Last Supper, the Passover meal with them. And he said, this, is, this bread's my body, this wine is my blood, eat and drink, and do this to remember me. And so every week in church now, at this church, we do communion and we remember the, the uh, sacrifice of Jesus. And we, we take the, the juice and the, the matzah, and they're symbols of the crucifixion of Jesus and the sacrifice he made. And yet every week we don't wash each other's feet. And yet the same night he said, do this, he said, do that. Have, have, raise your hand for this. Have any of you ever been a participant in a foot washing either direction? Okay, I, I have both ways. Um, I imagine my review is the same as yours. Somewhat awkward, um, and m maybe... Is, is the reason we do this and not that because there's less giggling involved and less embarrassment? I, I actually have, I think, a theological answer, at least this is my opinion, on why we do this every week and we don't do the foot washing every week. I think the reason Jesus said those things about this is my body, this is my blood, was he was creating a symbolic word picture. You know, he really was just holding matzah and wine. He wasn't, they weren't his, his body and blood. And he was, I think, inaugurating for us a commemorative, symbolic act that we could do 2,000 years later and celebrate his 
crucifixion or, or solemnize it or remember what he meant. Why did he wash their feet? Was he washing their feet as a symbolic act? Now, I think he washed their feet because their feet were dirty. And I think he washed their feet because they lived in a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, where they ate in the reclining style, where one guy's dirty feet was going to be way too close to my plate of food. Um, and so they washed their feet because it was a necessary thing. Now, to be fair, it was a very humble act of service. And most households would have had servants that would do that foot washing. You wouldn't have had the leader, the most respected man in the room, do the most humble act. But So I would suggest to you that we have opportunities to wash each other's feet every week. Yet, we don't literally wash each other's feet because your feet aren't that dirty. All of you have hot and cold running water and clean socks. And if I were to try to wash your feet, it would be a somewhat symbolic act that might be appropriate. I'm not, you know, the, the symbolism of that I, f I feel like has been appropriate when I participated in it before. But how, how backwards would it be if you came to me and said, you know, I have this need. You know, my, my car's broken down. I can't afford to fix it, whatever. Is there any way you can help me? Well, you know, I, I really would like to wash your feet. And, and you're saying, well, you know, that'd be nice, but what I really need is my car fixed, you know. Um, so I was thinking about an example. What's an example of foot washing? Uh, my favorite example is from here a couple years ago, and it's, it's one that involves me. That bathroom, the men's room, uh, was clogged. And uh, it would have been real easy for me to say, you know, we should hire a plumber. We should, you know, we have people who, are, uh, with, uh, who have maintenance skills. We should get one of those guys to do it. But church was going to start in just a few minutes. And we uh, you know, plunged and plunged. That's all mostly my skill. And, and ultimately, I just realized there's something in there that's got to come out. And so uh, I just went for it. And uh, it turns out it was like a coffee bomb. Somebody had put, like, coffee grounds, and it wasn't anything more nasty than that. Although, you know, the first look, it looked nasty. Uh, but it was, just, uh, it was just coffee grounds wrapped up in a filter. And then, of course, I scrubbed my arm for about 10 minutes before the service started. But uh, I thought, you know, that was kind of nasty on the level of washing somebody's dusty feet. And yet it needed to be done. And it was an opportunity for me to, I, I was really grateful for the example later on because it was an opportunity for me to, to, to serve in a way that was effective. And see, if, if, if I'd left that thing clogged and met you at the door and tried to wash your feet, that would have been so backwards because it would have been like, wait a minute, my feet are clean, but do you, have a, do you have a toilet that works? That's what we really need today. And so... That, my point of that is you have opportunities to wash each other's feet, but we have to look for them. You know, if we just went around symbol, you know, doing this symbolic act, that just wouldn't be that much help to people in the year 2008 in, in the United States. Now, there may be parts in the world where that's more necessary even today, but you guys just don't need that much. But what do your neighbors need? You know, that's, we can submit by discovering that. Now, we've looked at the example of Jesus. Let's take a look at the epistles. Peter and Paul both affirm the same idea. The New Testament reading was from Philippians 2, where Paul said, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And then Peter says, much the same thing in uh, 1 Peter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
He committed no, dis no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. And this is the key point. Submission is not trusting your authorities because, you know, sometimes they're not trustworthy. You know, we've all been in positions where the authorities we submitted to turned out not to be all that trustworthy. It's trusting God to work through them. And if I'm in right relationship, then I can count on God to bless me and protect me, uh, even if the authority I'm submitted to isn't doing it right. Ephesians 5.21. Well, uh, yeah, I'll move on. I was, I was going to give an Old Testament example, but I'm running short on time. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, this is the introduction to the Ephesian housestuffle. That's the vocabulary word of today, housestuffle. Uh, that was a new word for me this week, and so I'm eager to pull it out and use it. Uh, this phrase was coined by Martin Luther, and it literally means house table, and it, it refers to rules of a Christian household, and it's a recognized literary form because you find it a few different places in the New Testament, in Ephesians and Colossians and in 1 Peter. And the thing I want to point out to you about this is these teachings were radical for the day. Peter and Paul are both sometimes accused of being uh, sexist because of their, uh, and sometimes even racist because of their things that they say about wives submitting to their husband or slaves submit to your masters. But I, I would suggest to you, if we understand their teachings right, that they were actually radical and progressive for their day. A contemporary source, not in the Bible, that would write about relationships would say something like, Submit because of the natural order. Submit because you need to know your station in life. Notice that Peter and Paul never wrote to husbands and said, make sure your wives submit. They wrote directly to the wives and said, have this attitude. And then they also had lots of things to say to the husbands. They had things to say to people in the dominant part of that relationship. Who should submit? According to Peter and Paul, women and men should submit, children and parents, servants and masters. The epistles call on the authority figure in those relationships to also follow the example of Christ. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So it's not just followers who are called to submit and serve. It's the leaders that are called to submit and serve also. Colossians 3, the Colossian hostuffle, has obligations for wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. In fact, for Paul's audience, for Peter's audience, the subordinate partner wouldn't have had to change anything in order to obey this. Uh, the, the hierarchy 2,000 years ago was very plain. Uh, telling wives to submit to their husbands doesn't require them to change anything at all. But telling husbands to love your wives, that's radical. Making a command to the dominant figure in, the, in this relationship would have put the burden or the sting of, of of these standards on the authority figure, not on the subordinate figure. So notice the reciprocal submission that they teach. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. These are radical teachings for 2,000 years ago. And the most dramatic statement of mutual submission, I think, or one of the most dramatic I think you can find, is in Philemon, uh, in verse 16. I, I'll tell the story to illustrate. Philemon was a friend of Paul's who was a Christian. Onesimus was his slave who escaped, became a Christian, and then came under Paul's direction. And Paul, I think, commands them both to submit. Uh, he tells Onesimus, go back to 
to Philemon because, in essence, you stole his property when you ran away. I think you should submit by going back to him. And then look what he says to Philemon in verse 16. This guy is no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. I think Paul's commanding Philemon to set him free when he comes home. It looks like he's, he's creating, he's telling them both to submit. Are there limits to submission? Of course there are. Destructive behavior would be the limit. There's, I would not encourage you to submit to the point of abuse, to the point of a crime. Um, Matthew 22, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It is not an act of love to enable the person you love uh, to continue in destructive behavior. And, and, and sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that, that it's okay if the destructive behavior is directed towards me, but that's not an act of love either. Um, in, in connection with the government, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Yet God's the supreme authority, and in the book of Acts, we see Peter and John proclaiming the resurrection even when they're ordered not to. Acts 4.19, Peter and John said, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And in Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. Yet who did they submit to? Did they submit to God or did they submit to the governing authorities? And I would suggest to you they submitted to both. They took the beatings. They didn't start a revolution. They didn't say, let's pick up a brick and bust the Sanhedrin down. They, they, they said, we can't stop talking about the resurrection. And if you beat us, then we're, we still can't stop talking about the resurrection. And if you kill us, we still can't stop, stop talking about the resurrection as long as we can. And so they submitted to, to both. In Romans 13, 1, Paul wrote, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Um, let's contrast this with Paul's behavior at Philippi. Uh, we did a, message, a series on Philippians a couple years ago. Some of you may remember. This to me is an example of Paul, the lawyer, being one of the worst lawyers in history. Um, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, most of you remember, the, or maybe you remember the story, Paul went to Philippi to plant a church. He found some converts down by the river, a lady and her family, and then they threw him in jail. They beat him, they left him in jail, he and Silas on, on trumped up charges, false charges. Um, what's Paul do when he's in jail? He and Silas sing, they continue to do their church planning work, and the jailer is converted, and he's a, a, a part of their, the church they leave behind in Philippi. And then, check this out in Acts 16. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, if you read the end of the story, when, when Paul said, we're Roman citizens, they were scared. And, and they, they immediately began to treat them right. And why do I say Paul's such a bad lawyer? If that Roman citizenship card is so good at scaring off the authorities, I'm thinking you should play that before the beatings. Um, but he and Silas were beaten and jailed overnight, and then it says, you can go, and he says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Why did he do it then? Because the beatings and the imprisonment didn't compromise his mission to plant a church in Philippi, and scaring the authorities into realizing they'd done wrong 
left the church he planted in stronger position instead of scurrying out in the night as some outlaw he 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 forced the authorities to recognize they had wronged him and the church he left behind I think was stronger because of that uh, so he held them to account so what are the limits of the submission I think sometimes it's easy to figure it out if there's crime involved if there's abuse involved it's pretty easy well some the Bible doesn't require you to submit that far. Other times it's harder and we need the Holy Spirit and the wise counsel of others to help us see the, the practical aspects. Many of the practical aspects of submission we're gonna learn about next week when we see service, but this week, the application this week is I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can practice submission in all of these relationships to God, to the scriptures, are there places? Can, can you find a scripture this week and say, you know, my life doesn't match up with that. I'm going to change my life to submit to that. That's an act of submission. To your family, whatever part you are in the family, there are people there you should submit to. To your neighbors, to the body of Christ, to the broken and despised, and to the wider world. Final question I have for you is, is whenever I teach about authority and submission, I always get this question. What if I'm under the authority of someone who's incompetent? And the answer is, when are you not going to be? When are you going to be under the authority of someone who measures up to your expectations 100% of the time? Um, first, the first and basic answer is trust God. Pray. That's second. If you have to escape for the sake of your family, then, then, then do escape, but, it's, but do it respectfully. And if you're going to stay, then stay respectfully. Um, I've been on both sides of this equation. I've served under the direction of someone who seemed like he was over his head. I've been the guy in authority who was over his head. Some might say I'm still that guy, uh, but that, 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 has, that hasn't ended. And yeah, I can tell you on both sides, that's a very awkward and painful thing, place to be. Pray for the one in authority that you're, you're obliged to submit to, and you take the leadership in setting an example. You're accountable before God for how you respond, and, and he or she is accountable before God for how they handle their duties. It's easy to trust God when everyone's doing everything you expect, but there's an opportunity for spiritual growth when it doesn't all make sense to us, and yet still we trust God to work through it anyway. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, this message. Uh, I thank you for Richard Foster's good work, and Lord, I thank you for the, uh, um, the truth from your word. Lord, I ask that you would help us to live this. I ask that you would help us to embrace the concept of submission in a way that sets us free from our own desire to control circumstances and to control people. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, help us to turn away from attempts to manipulate and control others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.